Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Obviously, we're at the beginning of something. I don't expect you to know where it's gonna go. But I believe we might be on to something. That show, that song, particularly the first words, it kind of really describes the type of show that we're going to be doing right now. This is called Ask or, Ask or Tell Me Anything. Uh, you call 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. You ask or tell me anything. No, no guests to get in the way. Also, I'm back from a week off, which I, I haven't taken a lot of vacations during the pandemic, so I'm, I'm unused to being on vacation and unused to coming back from vacation. I want to know if this got a lot of coverage last week. The fact that we had like the shortest day ever. I mean, it seems to be, it seems to be like in the history. I mean, I know they haven't been timing the Earth rotation all that long, but the shortest day ever was June 29th of this year. It was 1.59 milliseconds less than the average. And they're not even 100% sure. By they, I of course mean them, uh, they are not entirely sure why the Earth would be spinning faster. I mean, that's, what, that's how you get the shortest day, right? The Earth spins faster. So there's like a lot of different possibilities. And I mean, in the coverage that I've read, it's less clear whether we should find this alarming. But if we do find it alarming, there's not much re- – there's nobody you can call <laughs> – Um, I suppose we could sort of erect huge paddles that would stick out of the sides of the earth and maybe kind of try to slow things down. That's that's just back of the napkin calculations on my part, of course. But that's what I would I would want to discuss the the space paddles. Um, And speaking of that, I have one other thing. And then there's people who they want to talk already and I want to talk to them. But speaking of sort of astronomical potential disasters. I do feel like, you know, in any of the next two or three years, if we have one of those Armageddon type, I mean, Armageddon movie type things where there's a comet or an asteroid or, I don't know, a VW bus that's just coming right at the planet and we've got to do something about it and it's going to take some money to do something to send Bruce Willis and some other people up there. I just feel like when the bill, the emergency bill is going through Congress, there's going to be some West Virginia thing we have to do, right? It's going to be. Oh, also, it also includes money for the world's biggest tiki torch factory 
in Wheeling, West Virginia, because otherwise we can't get it through. You know, and, and the senators will be going, Joe, Joe, we're all going to die. We got to we got to blow the comet up. We got to. He's like, I'm sorry, I can't do this unless West Virginia gets a little something. And if you're a climate activist, and we're going, we're going to have we have a climate call coming up here on the show. What I don't, what I would do if I were them. I mean, I know it looks like we're going to get this bill, and that's great. Uh, but it's sort of interesting what it took to get this bill. If you're if you're a climate activist or you're the NRDC, or you should support incredibly good energy conservation measures, uh, uh, carbon reduction measures that just take place in West Virginia, right? We should have the world's biggest uh, solar panel factory should be in West Virginia because we could just get a lot of federal money for it or, or the world's biggest electric car plant or something. <laughs> you should just do everything in West Virginia. And so then Manchin will be happy and you can get federal money for it. No point in doing anything like that in any other state at the moment. If you, I mean, if you want to save humankind and most of life on Earth. All right. So I'm going to just go right down the uh, the line here and uh, we'll just sort of see what happens. Well, you know, I have a screen. I'm going to go straight down the screen. Here we go. Uh, without fear or favor. Uh, here's Joan in Hamden. Hi, Joan. You're the first call. Hi, Colin. Welcome back. Shortest day. Don't care. Don't care. Okay. Um, my request uh, from you, I read a column that you wrote uh, some months ago about the writing of the Constitution and how there's a lot of drunkenness and a lot of discord. And I would just like you to discuss that in, in light of these um, Christian nationalists who are claiming that it was an or, you know, God-ordained or Christ-ordained document, which yeah. makes no sense to me because it, it okayed uh, slavery. Slavery was okay. Right. Against Jesus. I mean, it, look, yeah. it's not a good constitution uh, in a lot of ways. And I actually wrote that column, I think, a couple of years ago, maybe. But, um, but yeah, the point that I was making was, first of all, the process by which the Constitution was written would not be tolerated today. It was written in secrecy. There was no transparency. Uh, the people writing the Constitution were 55 white men. For diversity, there were 54 Protestants and one Catholic. Uh, you know, that was their idea of diversity. And, yeah, there was a fair amount of day drinking going on. That you know, doesn't usually result in really good products. Um, and, and we've just been dealing with the aftermath. Uh, you have a Second Amendment that is so awkwardly worded as to be open to radically multiple uh, interpretations. And yes, the original sin of slavery is preserved. Uh, the denial of rights to Native Americans and women preserved in the Constitution. I mean, these the things that have taken amendments, you know, are, are really kind of basic things that other countries I think are able to do a little bit more easily. And now it's become essentially practically impossible to amend the Constitution. I mean, we can't even get enough consensus to do much less radical things than amend the Constitution. So it's riddled with problems. You can't amend it. Most countries, and I mean, I don't have this information at my fingertips, but most countries have have abolished constitutions and written new ones and ratified new ones in the amount of time that we've had this constitution. This constitution is kind of like something that a lot of countries probably would put up in the attic by now and get, get a new one. Um, you know, there it is now, I believe, the only constitution in the world, the only foundational government document in the world that even mentions firearms. I think Mexico and Guatemala in their old constitutions <laughs> mentioned firearms. But we're, it's down to us now. You know, it's just not something you typically put in a, in a foundational government document. Um, you know, it would be like if the Magna Carta had like a whole thing about spears. You know, you got, we got it. Everybody gets a spear. 
and that's just the way it is. Um, it's, there are so many things about it that are either odd or, or malformed. And yet, yeah, there's just all this reverence that's directed to it, towards it, not just by white nationalists either. Okay. <laughs> but I know it's not cool to say that, you know, because yeah. in, a, in a way it's like, in some ways I think, I, I was reluctant to say it for many years because it's like our only consensus thing in some ways. I mean, people yeah. argue about the flag. Can you burn the flag? Can you do this? You know, and everybody hates the national anthem except the people who love the national anthem. But the Constitution, you know, I mean, it does enjoy a certain kind of status. But I think that status is misprojected. I don't know. John Paul Stevens wrote a whole book about this, how, about how basically the Constitution should be amended a lot more because that's the other part of it. I mean, when you think about how long this Constitution has existed and then you, you – okay, you take out the Bill of Rights, which are essentially kind of coterminous with the Constitution. Then you take out, for example – I think there's an, um, an amendment causing prohibition and an amendment removing <laughs> prohibition. And then you take the amendments that are essentially the product of the Civil War. You take those out. You really don't have very much. You know, that really, it really isn't a document that changes enough. And, and in meanwhile, here, I remember the other thing I forgot to say, John, which is the people who wrote this were living a life much closer to the way life was lived in the Roman Empire than the way life is lived today. I mean, they didn't have internal combustion engines. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have germ theory. They didn't have antibiotics for their germ theory. I mean, the things that we use to get through our days, for the most yeah. part, did not exist. Computers and communications. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so guess what? It's, it's not really ready for a lot of the stuff yeah. that gets thrown at it. Um, so um, anything else? No, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that I could be helpful by quoting myself. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's like about, about what I can handle the first day back. All right, here comes Eric from Cheshire. Is the number two call of the day. Hi, Eric. You have the floor. Hi, Colin. Um, I'm calling about a uh, podcast you had in June uh, regarding uh, uh, right-wing conspiracy theorists and and quacks infusing themselves into the New Age movement uh, and, uh, and using uh, the New Age movement as a platform uh, to sell their conspiracy theories and, and products. Uh, am I interpreting that correctly? I think that's a pretty, pretty concise statement okay. of what we were talking about, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, doing away with the, you know, with the quacks and conspiracy theorists, um, I'm calling about uh, a portion of that program where you were talking about um, uh, the new age uh, gibberish or or jargon, like uh, moving uh, or or entering into a higher state of consciousness or grounding ourselves that we often find in uh, the yoga and mindfulness magazines that are sold on, on store shelves. And you mentioned uh, there, there was some discussion about women taking more of a liking to that type of, of language than men. Uh, do you recall that? Actually, I don't remember that, but I wouldn't be surprised if one of the guests said that, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, anyway... Um, I, I think it's. I, 
I think it's unfortunate that that uh, a lot of these publications have a lot of, have this gibberish in it that that most lay people, including myself, can neither understand or relate to. Uh, and and I think with regards to yoga, um, uh, you know, the secret of of yoga as a form of meditation can be uh, expressed in simple terms, which is that yoga equals focused concentration plus controlled breathing. Uh, and uh, with regards to the focused concentration, uh, the poses. Uh, the purpose of the poses is not really to get our body, contort our bodies into pretzels, but to uh, to focus on the physical sensations that we experience while we're in each pose. Uh, so that's where the focus concentration comes in, uh, which is a form of of meditation because we're uh, or mindfulness because we're uh we're being conscious of what's uh, what we're experiencing at the present time um and and with regards to controlled breathing um uh, i think four or five years ago uh there was uh, a research uh medical research done on uh stimulating the vagus nerve uh by making the exhale longer than the inhale uh, and and breathing in and out through the nostrils since uh, the nostrils are a, a more narrow passageway for air to flow than the mouth. Uh, and um, I, I think that is probably the secret for both the alter, al- alternate nostril breathing and the ohm chant. Right. So I don't, I mean, we're getting, we might be getting a little bit bogged down here uh, with asanas and, and, yeah. and ujjayi breath and stuff like that. I, I will say, look, yoga itself is a great thing. It really is. Yeah. And I did five years of it very, very intensively, like four or five classes a week and stuff like that. And I got a lot out of it. But the point is that yoga also is, I mean, we said this about a number of things on that particular episode. There are a lot of things that are really, you know, fine all by themselves, but they also are kind of gateways for misinformation. You have credulous people. You have, you know, a kind of a guru system. I mean, you know, if you go, well, I mean, certainly some of the itinerant uh, yoga instructors like Anna Forrest with these massive national reputations and stuff, you know, th- these are people who can command a lot of belief and, and get the behaviors they want out of people and stuff like that. Uh, and so if they don't handle that power responsibly, which a lot of them don't, uh, if they don't handle that power responsibly, then you start to to open up pathways to anti-science, to anti-vaccination. I mean, the real point of the Conspirituality Show is that we, particularly I, I really aimed it at the public radio audience because that actually tends to be who's listening to a public radio show. The point was, you think of all this stuff, the conspiracies, the, the you know, 9-11 so-called truthers, I don't like that term, uh, the people who deny the reality of Sandy Hook, the anti-vaxxers. You think of them as, for the most part, coming out of the religious right or the right wing in general. And that's wrong. An awful lot of this stuff comes from the left and particularly from what would be cloudily and amorphously described, I think, as the New Age movement. Uh, and, and you know, we sort of pat ourselves on the back and go, well, we're not those people. 
you know. <laughs> uh, but but a lot of that stuff can come that way if the people who are doing who are leading these movements do not behave responsibly. And, and the history of the last 20, 30 years is littered with people not behaving responsibly when they were running these movements and having a lot of power and stuff like that. So that was kind of the point of the show. All right. I probably have time for – actually, you know what, uh, Mr. Uh, Matruda? We, I think we should take a break here. Let's grab a break here. Our number is 888-720-WNPR. Marianne from Durham, we can come to you right when we get back. 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Become a caller. Some vaccinista, toe-back, chic baristas Sitting east on the communista keistas Writing about their ejaculations I like my man like I like my coffee Full of soy milk and so sweet It won't offend anybody while Staining the pages of the nation Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Listen for the river When you find good people A need for the giver When you find good people A wounded the trigger An epic for the gun When you find good people A victim for the pen When you find good people A villain for the hymn When you find good people There's hands to make good men Out of our wayward sons All right, we're back. It's Ask or Tell Me Anything. The number, 888-720-WNPR. We had a full board of calls. Some people dropped out. There's room for you and your call now. And remember, no call is too recherche. No call is too esoteric. No call is too weird, for want of a better term. Uh, So just go ahead. Just go ahead. Make the call. Um, I'm kind of hoping that somebody at some point wants to talk about Alex Jones last week. I should say that because of what happened at that trial, I've asked... The producers, uh, if we could uh, rerun on Wednesday, our interview with Elizabeth Williamson, who wrote kind of the definitive book about Sandy Hook and specifically about the kind of epistemic crisis triggered by Alex Jones and his followers and imitators. Uh, I just feel like it's just an, what happened last week was in a you know very positive 
And at times, if you can use this word associated with such a horrible tragedy, there was something kind of delicious about everything that happened to Alex Jones last week. So if anybody wants to talk about that, I'm certainly available. But I'm also available to talk about, as I say, far more esoteric matters. All right, we're going to talk to Marianne, as promised, from Durham. Hi, Marianne. You're, you have the floor now. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for your show and your talent. My question is this. Do you know uh, anyone or any department of the state of Connecticut or in the city of Connecticut who has been taxed with the responsibility of monitoring the daily extraction of water from the aquifer from Bloomfield to a company that I understand is, is sending that water water bottled into California. Right. So just here's a little bit of the background. I'm not going to know all the answers to all your questions off the air, but this will help you understand. So the company's called Niagara, Niagara Bottled Water, whatever, Niagara Bottling. Um, and this dates back to at least 2016, when this proposal was first bodied forth by the agency that is supposed to. <laughs> that, it, the question you're really asking is, who's regulating the regulators? Who's, who's watching over the regulators? The MDC, which is the Metropolitan District Commission, that is the entity that runs the reservoirs around here, runs reservoirs, live sewers, all kinds of stuff like that. So, and they're the ones who wanted to do this. They were very interested in this. And since that time, a couple of years ago, I believe Niagara got a, um, a water rate cut. It's the biggest user now of MDC water. And I think they have a rate cut, like they pay 50% of what everybody else pays <laughs> or something like that. And the problem with the MDC is that it's always been a somewhat, it's what's called a quasi-public agency, quasi-public agency, whatever. Um, right. And so, and those agencies are they're bad, first of all. I mean, if I were to make a list of 100 things that have gone wrong in the state of Connecticut in the last 25 years, quasi-publics would have their fingerprints over a lot of them because they aren't as transparent. They're, they should be. The way the laws are written, they should be as transparent as regular government. They often think that they're not. Uh, they're harder to control. Their budgets are harder con to control. So they do a lot of stuff in a way that is kind of impenetrable and hard to understand. From the beginning, this whole thing never really smelled right. Uh, I mean, one of the arguments that they were making was, I went to at least one of the hearings about this. They had too much water. They really needed, like, here we have a planet that's drying up before our eyes, and you have these people entrusted with this incredibly important mission, and the argument they were making is they have too much water, and they really need to, to sell some of this water to a bottling company. It never smelled right. good. It never smelled right. Uh, I, I think it's an under-regulated question. I don't know whether it's possible to put any of that toothpaste back in the tube that it came out of. But it, it, it has never sat well with me. And in general, I mean, this was done in the teeth of pretty, you know, pretty vehement opposition from elected officials and citizens groups and just regular old citizens like you. Um, and it didn't matter because these these quasi-publics are very, very hard to rein in. And the MDC in particular is a very hard entity to rein in. Uh, and I don't know how in the world this deal was hatched. Uh, what lobbyists got a lot of money from doing it. I don't know anything about that, but it's never seemed right. And it seems worse, Marianne, with each passing year because, you know, yes. water is more precious. So what does, what does, we, what do we do if we think that this is dirty water? 
so to speak. Yeah, uh, you know, I don't have an um, e- yeah, I don't have an easy answer for that. There are deep? yeah, there are organizations. Well, there are there are organizations like CCAG that you know specialize in pressuring uh, government at times. Um, there, the who? What's CCAP? Oh, CCAG, Connecticut Citizens Action Group. So that's like an. Okay, there are organizations like that that you okay. you could be involved with. Uh, I don't know. I mean, probably if you Google search this, you'll find out who's been leading the way, or maybe somebody will call in and say, "I'm sure there okay. have been some citizens groups leading the way." On the other hand, even though they led the way, they haven't really made a whole lot of headway. Basically, Niagara is getting exactly what it wants, which is a big fat gulp of our water. So, right. um, so you're asking the right question, which is who is monitoring the MD- the MDC? It wasn't that they were neutral about this idea; they were in love with this idea. They really, for whatever reason, you know, and it's kind of unusual. It's but it's sort of like dr- drilling on public lands and stuff like that that goes on in other parts of the country. It's always kind of amazing. These people are supposed to be stewards of resources and it turns out that the, they can't wait to turn those resources over to some big company let them do let it do whatever it wants to do yeah i mean it might be turning up in saudi arabia who knows right well <laughs> you know or at least at least you know at their golf tournaments uh all right we have to uh move along here we're going to go back to the top of the queue and go back down again here is uh adrian uh, in west hartford hi you have the floor hi colin thank you so Today, I want to plug for an organization run by AARP in New Haven. It's national, but in Connecticut, it's only in New Haven. It's called Experience Corps, and it hooks up seniors who would like to tutor um, kids in reading. And I I did it this past school year, and I'm with one child, and I'm going to be doing it this coming year for two. It's a wonderful opportunity. It's a great, it's a very well-organized program. And the nicest people in the world. And basically, um, you sign up to tutor a child in, this, in, in the greater New Haven school system. And this can be done either in person in the school or on Zoom, mm-hmm. which is what I'm doing because I live in West Hartford. And you, you, sign, you, you tutor this child who is in grades one through three um, and who has been evaluated as to their reading level and, and and you spend half an hour twice a week, uh, one-on-one with this child with a fairly scripted program, um, working them through uh, reading at a, at a more fluent level. It's really well organized. And I would think, you know, as a retired senior myself, I, I wanted some way to contribute. And I thought that, you know, tutoring um, kids from low to disadvantaged communities would be a great thing to do. It does sound like a great thing to do. And I'm willing to bet, Adrienne, that you learned a lot from the process, too. In my experience with tutoring, particularly kids from backgrounds less privileged than the one I grew up in, you just learn so much when you learn about them. You absolutely do. And I'm thinking that your audience might have some people who would like to participate. Could I give an email? Sure. Over there? Is that possible? Why not? Okay, so it would be T, as in Thomas Mead, M-E-A-D, at a O A S C C dot org. Hmm. Oh, that's a mouthful, but um but I'm sure if you just Google AARP tutoring program or whatever, you can track this thing down. Uh, all right, we're gonna move on here. We have Mary Jean in North somewhere. North something. Oh, North Stonington. North Stonington. I could only see there's only a certain 
there's only room for a certain amount of letters there. So North Stonington, a community beset by mountain lions, uh, right. but that's not what you're we calling We did, about. I think. We did have the stray mountain lion that came through. I certainly hope that he didn't get shot, but I don't know. No. Uh, but I guess we used to have them in Connecticut a long time ago. I just wanted to um, shout out to a lovely rock group. They are Motown, but they are understated and stripped down and made for the 20, 21st century. And their name is AKNU. And if you just Google Aknu Brothers, you will see something very interesting and enjoyable. Okay. And that's my uh, contribution. And I love the show. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you. It said here that she wanted to talk about Alex Jones. <laughs> that's why I went right to her. Uh, all right. So, um, all right. I don't even know what this one's going to be. Here's Jackie in Hamden. Hi, Jackie. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Sorry it's not about Alex Jones. That's okay. But, um, okay. I want to know what you think of socially acceptable, it's still socially acceptable to use the phrase, hey, guys, no matter what the gender of the group, even if it's all women, and what we can do to use something else like, hey, folks, or that's the only one I've come up with. But why why is it still acceptable with all these other challenges about being gender um, yeah, inclusive? I'm probably guilty of that um, because I feel like guys, at least in that context— has lost some of, of its gender specificity. But I don't really know how I could, you know, legitimately make that case because guy is clearly a gendered word. But I feel like when you're talking to a whole bunch of people and you say, hey, if I'm talking to my, you know, one of my classes that I teach and it's, you know, it's young men and young women, I might say, hey, guys, we got to do this. And I don't know. I mean, but you, you might be right. Maybe I need to uh, develop greater sensitivity about it. Hey, folks, doesn't the thing about hey guys is there's something a little bit more of a rallying quality to that, right? Hey guys, we got to do this right now. You know, hey guys, we've only got thirty minutes left in class, so let's focus on the topic right now. Uh, was hey folks? Well, hey folks, hey folks, we only got yeah. I could make that. It, it, it feels like a little, the other way. It's a little Garrison Keillery to me somehow. You know. <laughs> Well, I think when we first started noticing how, for me, my white privilege was spewing all over the place and I didn't know it, it was a normal thing in a similar way that, hey, guys, has become normalized. You're absolutely so right. Think, yep. Yep. So uh, I will inv- so I will invoke the Ken Jennings rule. Not the Ken Jennings on Jeopardy, um, <laughs> but the um, oh, okay. my college roommate, Ken Jennings, uh, who is a black American and left-handed. Uh, and I one time, years, years and years after we graduated, uh, I asked him a question. Well, it was actually about the fact that there was a college at Yale University named after John C. Calhoun. And, and I, I, mm-hmm. I, I said to Ken, because we were there in the 70s, I said, was this a thing? Did people talk about this? Because it's insane. It's outrageous mm-hmm. that there's a college named after John C. Calhoun. But like, I don't remember us talking about that in the 70s. And, and he said, Colin... Being black in America is a lot like being left-handed. You know, if you're left-handed, you notice certain things. You notice that ladles don't work very well for you or, you know, doorknobs or scissors or whatever. You just notice all this stuff that's not set up right uh, for left-handed people. Because that's what being black is like. It's just like a lot of stuff white folks don't notice that is set up all wrong. Uh, and I think your comment kind of goes into that category, too. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with, hey, guys, but then I'm – in this context, a white right-handed person, you know? <laughs> Good. Well, I hope it raises right. awareness to be 
thinking about it. Right. In real life, I'm left-handed, just like Ken Jennings. Uh, all right. So I'm looking at all the calls here, and they're all really interesting, actually. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to sound, found, sound surprised that they're all interesting. I don't know. There's one at the top here that says force field analysis. I might have to take that call, right? Do I have to take that call? Um you mean, it seems like that's the kind of call this show is set up for. Like, I'm looking at the call, and I can't imagine what it's about. Uh, and I can't imagine what I would have to say about it. But here's Chris from Wethersfield. Hi, Chris. You have the floor. Yes. How are you? I'm all right. I am fine. Okay. Here's here's my uh, attempt at some solution. Short of a constitutional convention or doing an amendment, can we start with just an analysis? Um, it was called field force analysis when I studied it. And, you know, it's a snapshot of what is time now and why can't we move off the dime? And there are driving forces, um, you know, making things in a certain way. And then there's restraining forces that keep time now not moving. And... Either you increase a driving force, you have to do the analysis, which one to choose, or, uh, you know, do away with one of these restraining forces to move the dime. Right. And can we start with, I mean, we have to elect good people, do the analysis. That's my only hope. Right. Well, that's a good hope. I mean, I think there are the case of the Constitution. I, that that might be useful more in terms of the fact that the Earth is spinning too. In my opinion, it's spinning. Well, too that's fast. another good one that yeah. you brought yeah. up. Right, it, it's spinning too fast. Right, I, I feel in my opinion the Earth is spinning too fast at this point. So I would use field force or force field analysis as the case may be on that. The problem with the Constitution is essentially structural, you know, and and, and we it didn't anticipate a lot of things, and one of the things that it didn't anticipate was the growing significance of political parties and then the growing intransigence of political parties. Uh, And now it's just kind of hard to imagine getting an amendment uh, done with the way things are right now. All right. I'm looking at things. Well, we have Dave from Lake Como, uh, from Lake Como, Ohio, the beautiful Ohio-based recreation of Italy's Lake Como. Uh, He joins us now with his own comments. Hi, Dave. Greetings, Colin. How are you? Good. Um, I was just kind of following on what you were saying about the yoga uh, and, the, in a sense, the whole self-help industry and all that. I, I guess, for me, I've, I never have understood, or I understand, but have never shared that almost universal human need for kind of one theory or system that would explain everything in a way that would would settle your anxieties. I've never felt that. I mean, for me, Bukowski was right when he said you pretty much have to take life straight on. I know that that's really hard for probably most people to do. I I haven't met a whole lot of people like me that are pretty much content not knowing. Uh, But I, I, I wonder, you know, have you met a lot of people like that? It just doesn't, I've never felt that hunger to rush out and buy into, literally buy into some system because there's a lot of money to be made in offering a way for people to understand why things are, you know, why the world is the way it is. Well, just for the sake of conversation, I mean, I'm not sure exactly where I come down on this. 
But just for the sake of conversation, another way to look at this, a more benign way to look at it, uh, is how do we feel less crazy? How do we get through life being le- feeling less crazy, less terrified, less vulnerable? How, how do we go through life feeling as though there is some kind of coherent pattern of meaning? You know, and I think everybody has something. I would guess knowing you just a little bit, I mean, we have never met or anything like that, that music may play that role for you, you know, that that when you when you're feeling worried or overwhelmed or cosmically insignificant, yeah. you turn to the great music that you care about and and you find something there that allows you not to just go into your room and turn the lights off and pull the covers over your head, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so and I think people find all kinds of things like that. And sometimes it's a medication that they wind up taking. And sometimes it's yoga and sometimes it's great music and sometimes it's the outdoors uh, and sometimes it's conventional religion and sometimes it's unconventional religion. And sometimes it's Rogerian therapy and sometimes it's, you know, Eric Ericksonian therapy. I, I mean, you know, I think that's the reality. reality. The question is, what do we do with that? And what do the purveyors do with that? Do they handle the tremendous responsibility implicit in the role? If you're the provider of meaning and context, if you're telling people, all right, if you live this way, if you add this this thing that I have or that I teach about to your life in a large quantity, your life will be better or you will at least feel more secure in your spot in the universe. And when some idiot comes on the radio and tries to get you all worried about the fact that the earth is spinning too fast, you'll go, well, I don't care about that because I've got this. You know, and and I just think, you know, uh, some of these people are more responsible about their role than other people are. Uh, so well, I, you know. I never buy into any of it, any of it, of course. But you know, your comment about music, yes, I do reach for that. However, and and I know you have other people calling, but there is a very great crisis, like in big symphonic works after maybe Beethoven or a little bit into the 19th century. It was no longer possible to neatly tie up a tragic or you know symphony or something that presented great problems, you know, with a with a suddenly optimistic finale. And that persisted into the 20th century. And there are a lot, you know, the works I like in music have more questions than answers, probably. And I'm never satisfied by neatly tying it up with a, you know, with a happy, a happy resolution when there seems no organic reason why, where that came from. Right. Unfortunately, the ticket buying public, uh, they want they want answers. They want Mozart. They oh, yeah. want, you know, they Absolutely. want they, they want some because they don't want to think the world is flying apart. Nobody want, nobody wants to feel that. All right. We have to take a quick break. The number is 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. You can call about anything. All right. So, uh, first of all, time to say some thank yous, uh, especially Cat Pastor is off today. Uh, so uh, we have Superman, basically, from his Fortress of Solitude. Uh, Gene Amatruda is in here doing the job of our technical producer. 
This, it is. It's like having Superman. Uh, it's like having Clark Kent and Superman in the booth at the same time. Uh, over, but meanwhile, Batman is over there uh, screening calls right now. That would be Jonathan McPants or Jonathan McCape and Cowl, perhaps. Uh, and so I don't know what else to say about that other than thanks to both of them. Uh, and we're doing Ask or Tell Me Anything, uh, which is the thing where we don't book any guests and we rely on fate and chance, I guess. <laughs> Um, and whatever acumen I may be able to summon up on any given day. All right, so we're going to talk to Levi right now. Levi, make sure your radio is turned down, which it might not be at the moment. Uh, and uh, Levi from West Hartford, you have the floor. Hi, Colin. Um, when you are talking earlier about conspiracy theories and about Alex Jones, I think Alex Jones is sort of the easy one to point to. But th- there's also this sort of academic tradition of conspiracy mongering that I think doesn't get enough attention. I mean, uh, a fellow by the name of Kenneth Minogue wrote a book about it in the 1980s, uh, and he sort of pointed to um, uh, Marx and the Frankfurt School, Adorno, Marcuse, uh, people who would write crazy things about how jazz is conspiring to keep people down by showing that capitalism can create something beautiful, and people today like Nancy McLean, over at Duke, who write about how the economist James Buchanan tried to destroy democracy. Uh, I mean, these are, these are sort of patently absurd things, but uh, people still manage to keep their tenure and, uh, and push it for uh, I don't know how many generations uh, uh, until they sort of get addressed or dismissed by people who think seriously. Um, okay, I mean, I, I think what, what Alex Jones is, is he's just sloppy about it. Well, he is, but he's also vastly more influential than... I mean, first of all, if you read um, Williamson's book, Elizabeth Williamson's uh, book about Sandy Hook, she does get into some of the people who, in a, in a university context, uh, in the context uh, of, you know, of faculty positions at universities, become enamored of the idea that Sandy Hook did not really happen. And that's just, to me, epistemically, you know, off the cliff. I mean, it just... I just can't even wrap my mind around this. But but yes, there's a lot of nonsense that goes on in the world of academia. The problem that, you know, and Jordan Peterson is just now the, the scepter bearer of academic nonsense. But I feel like I just I'm silencing uh, him is a good call, but it sounds like he's in Six Flags or something. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, some of this stuff does come out of academia. Um, he mentioned the Frankfurt School. Uh, you know, he mentioned Marcuse. I forget who else. I always felt that um, from the Frankfurt School, Oscar Mayer was really the greatest uh, theorist within the Frankfurt School of Economics, and he doesn't get anywhere near near enough credit for that. So, yes, Jürgen Habermas, I know about those people. But really, the person who defines the Frankfurt School for me is, of course, Professor Oscar Mayer. All right. So uh, now where are, are we now? Here's, I see some of these things like I can't even really see what the – OK, let's do this. I don't even know what it's about. Uh, and I also don't know how to pronounce the caller's name. So we're off to a <laughs> we're off to a great start. But you're on the air. Tell me how to pronounce your name and what we want to talk about. Uh, me you're talking to me? Yes, Oa. you, you, you indeed. Yes. Oa. Oa. Okay, it, got it. It's a tough name. Yeah. All you right. You covered sort of subject a number of times, and it's amazing how many people in the world are so obsessed with trying to answer the unanswerable question, like they're not comfortable with the fact that there are unanswerable questions. 
And you know, to me, when it's unanswerable, that's an answer. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a little bit of Rilke, you know, live the questions, love the questions. Yeah, but we, like, we're wired to, crave, to create certainty, though, to crave certainty. Yeah, but you can't, uh, you can't answer the certain questions. Like, you know, I just step out and the trees and the grass, everything is beautiful. You never know. They've tried for centuries. Nobody's going to know what this is. It's just uh, cool. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I would really recommend, if you don't haven't already watched it, the series The Good Place, which is a really terrific uh, Michael Schur comedy uh, about some of these questions about what the whole meaning of life was and what the purpose is and what you get rewarded for in the afterlife and what you don't. Uh, and, and at one point, they, they point to this uh, picture of this guy uh, they have a framed picture on the wall in the afterlife. He's like the one guy who figured out the whole thing. I think he like took some mushrooms and about three or four, you know, Dr. Peppers or something. And the whole thing, he just said out loud what the whole scheme of the universe is. But if you don't know that guy, yeah, you should be more comfortable with. I mean, I think in general, if I could just opine about this for a second, and then we've got John from Middletown. We probably have time for one more call, too, if you want to call 888 720-WNPR-888-720-9677. I think in general, we're, we're not comfortable saying I don't know, and we're not comfortable saying I was wrong. And those two things are both really important. And, and I think it's one of the, I mean, when we look at epistemic breakdowns, the latest one that has been a massive problem has been the response to COVID. And, and some of the response to COVID is due to scientific illiteracy and to a kind of intransigence born out of conspiracy-driven thinking that once again, again, is promulgated not totally on the right, but the Naomi Wolfs, you know, the Robert Kennedys, the, you know, Mark Crispin Miller, people like that. Um, and and but it's also caused a little bit by the scientific est- establishment. I would include Anthony Fauci in this. I mean, Anthony Fauci deserves a place in heaven for all the stuff that he's done. But you know, there's a certain point where you really do have to say, okay, I was wrong. I I was wrong about that. I want to correct it right now. That's this is the way it looked to me in April of 2020 based on the information I had. But we've got to hit the pause button for a second while we explain to you why we got it wrong and what now appears to be correct. And we're not good at that. They're not good at that. Um, and we're also not good at saying we don't know. Um, so I mean, I'm not good at it. I don't like saying I don't know. Uh, but I'm maybe about to do it right now. All right. So we'll get uh, – maybe we get get two calls in here. I don't know. John from Middletown. Hi. You've got the floor. Hi, Colin. Um, <clears throat> uh, great show. I want to uh, say as far as what your last call – um, sometimes we're uh, reluctant to say I, I didn't do enough, um, and I'm thinking in regards to climate change. Um, so I'm thinking that if um, the Department of Education, uh, sec- um, um, high school juniors and seniors, were to um, um, be given um, a, a course, being uh, available, um, maybe elective, uh, and um, so that. Um, you know, an understanding of, of what we're dealing with from not only the science, but the psychology of, uh, um, of, of what's going on. Um, so, um, um, in fact, I'll probably be calling 
the Department of Education and, and, and or sending a letter. Um, because honestly, as a result of your show, I just thought I just thought of this. So I uh, would love to know if you, you know what thoughts you might have. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think uh, this is not a universal thing. You can't talk dispositively about an entire generation, but millennials, uh, Gen Zers, um, people who are sort of coming into their own as adults, they get the stuff, climate stuff, more than we ever did, uh, and in some ways. Maybe they should be teaching the classes to the adults, uh, to the older adults. I mean, <laughs> people from my generation, we denied it for a really long time. It's no longer plausibly deniable anyway. But um, so in, in some ways, yes, I mean, some kind of institutional education. I mean, I think it's more important that schools become crucibles for thinking about ways to deal with this. Uh, and, and that, you know, I mean, that's we, we're going to need a generation of leaders and thinkers who can think more creatively and more elastically than most people have been able to do so far. All right, so I, we can just, we have very little time left, but I'm going to try to squeeze this in. Uh, hi, Joe from Windsor. You have the floor. I'm more curious if you've ever thought about what made Anthony Bourdain commit suicide and whether or not it had anything to do with his personal relationship. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, <laughs> first of all, I had the chance to work with Anthony Bourdain in the context of the Connecticut Forum. You don't really get to know a person that well. But, you know, we're together usually from mid-afternoon to the end of the night. Um, so, yeah, from mid-afternoon to the end of the night, went up in a bar with Anthony Bourdain and lots of other people. And what I was really struck by was that even if I got to know him better, I would not get to know him. Uh, this is not a person. He was, by the way, an impeccable professional. I've rarely worked with somebody that I had so few doubts about or who was not going to cause me any trouble, uh, all that kind of stuff. He he just knew how to hit his marks and do the job right and stuff like that. And you so appreciate that in certain contexts. But there's also so much being withheld. And there was just an incredible wall. Uh, and, you know, we all have walls. We all wear masks. But he really wore a very, very powerful series of masks and layers of masks and a very high wall. And so I wouldn't dream of trying to speculate why he took his own life or anything else. Anyway, we have to go. Thanks to everybody who listened.